This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. This is the place to hear fantastical fiction and hear from authors of fantastical news stories. This episode is another chapter in the fantasy novel Plantwise, book one in the Steward's World series. If you're ready for the magic of story, let's begin. Chapter 20 Ambrose didn't go to bed when he returned to his rooms more than an hour later. He had too much to do to waste time sleeping. A dozen plans raced through his mind, but this time they had purpose and meaning and weren't the dreams of a man who felt his life slipping away in uselessness. He roused Dylan from his restless sleep and told him to get ready for a long trip. He was proud of his grandson's restrained reaction when he revealed that young, sweet Mora in the garden was Princess Arden. Dylan let out a muffled curse as he leaped to get dressed and obey his grandfather's orders. Now, Ambrose sat at his table, in front of the window where he had been dreaming his life away, writing by the light of the moon and three candles. His hand ached from the unaccustomed exercise, but time was of the essence here. There was more than just Violet's life at stake. All right, what were you able to do, Glynna asked, floating in through the window to come to rest slightly above the chair opposite him. The poison accumulated slowly, and the healing must be done slowly, a little at a time, so Arden doesn't notice, but the child will not die. Ambrose barely smiled at the sight of her sitting there, as if she had always done so. Thank you. Now, how shall we make sure Maddox doesn't win? Brentonwald. He chuckled when she shook her head, confused. He muffled the sound quickly to avoid waking his guard. Ambrose could only press his luck so far, and tonight's comings and goings were near the safe limit. Brenton Wald is pressing Maddox for a marriage alliance, their Princess Fiera. That poor girl. Ha! He flinched, then grinned. Her strong will and determination are greatly exaggerated by Lord Anselm. I suspect to frighten Maddox and others who think like him, that royal daughters are weapons against their brother's thrones. I don't dare go to Lord Anselm directly, but I will ask for Brentonwald's help in getting Arden out of here safely. Once she's learned her lessons, and repaired the damage she's helped Maddox do to Stonemount. May Yeshen guard us all, Glynna murmured. Dylan entered the room, carrying his traveling sack, his steel-toed riding boots making sparks in the stone floor. His grim mouth and the tension radiating out of him drove away all Ambrose's other feelings in a surge of pride. There was still good blood in the royal family of Stonemount, after all. Ready, Grandfather. He held out his hand for the packet of letters Ambrose hurried to fold and seal. Go directly to King Alex and show him these old letters from his sister to prove you're a friend and coming directly from me. Tell him she's arrived here safely and so far no one suspects her true identity, and I will watch out for her to the best of my ability. I've given him several plans for how to prepare to sweep her away to safety, if the need arises. You need to find Rilling, who used to be a courier here, and get him to link you to his friends and contacts, so we can pass on information swiftly, if something goes wrong. He held up the last letter. This must go to King Fallon of Brentonwald to ask for his help. He knows my handwriting. Tell him whatever he wants to know and return here in one piece. Hear me? He thrust the last letter into his grandson's hands. 
If only to spite Maddox, the young man grinned. Good boy. Now go. He stood, arms wide, and hugged Dylan hard, then cuffed the back of his head for good measure as his grandson turned to leave. I like that boy, Glenna murmured. If only he were king instead of Maddox. Exactly what I was thinking. Ambrose shook his head, pushing away all thoughts of what might have been. There was too much to worry about in the present moment. Arden settled into her new routine quickly. She found she rather enjoyed the hidden aspects of palace life, though in Westerland there wasn't such a great distance between the nobles and their servants as there was in Stonemount. She liked finding her own meals, always welcome in Olive's kitchen between the great noon and evening rushes for court meals. She liked wearing the palace livery and blending in with everyone, ignored by the nobles. She laughed when Stonemount diplomats and their wives, who had been utterly obsequious to her in Westerland, passed her in the gardens as if she were invisible. The palace servants were a friendly crew when they weren't harried with the demands of their superiors, or dead tired. The women and girls doted on Violet, and Arden was assured of a dozen nursemaids if she grew too busy tending the tree to watch her daughter. The men who weren't attached made it plain that as soon as she put aside her black mourning, they would pay her court. She was flattered, and it had been a long time since she let herself be flattered. The attentions had to be genuine, she knew, because here in Stonemount she was no one and had nothing. Most of all, she enjoyed spending long hours wandering the gardens of the palace without anyone calling her away to tend to this nobleman or that countryman needing advice. She started each morning by skimming through Olive's kitchen, gathering up bread and milk and fruit in the little basket the cook set aside for her, and took herself and Violet out to the tree. She examined it to see what growth and other changes had occurred overnight, snipping off more dead twigs and leaves, talking to the tree, praising it for the new leaves and buds that would soon become blossoms, stroking it and leaving streaks of gold-green magic sparkles that sank into the bark and drove away more of the poison. She brought water from the stream that flowed past the wall encircling the tree and attempted to dig a ditch to drain away the stagnant pool inside the wall. She dug around the roots to let air and water seep into the dead soil and employed every gardening trick she had learned in wandering the farms of Westerland all her life. Common sense said she couldn't spend every hour of every day attending to the tree. Arden made herself popular with the servants by helping out with mending or washing clothes, doing small chores in the kitchen, or helping Jason gather flowers for decorations and arranging them. Violet was a favorite everywhere they went, and Arden was heartened by the new roses in her daughter's cheeks, the ready laughter when new friends tickled and jounced or made faces at her. Still, she reminded herself that Violet had rallied before in her long illness. This was only a change in climate and surroundings, and sooner or later the color would leave her daughter's cheeks and she would be too quiet again. Glynna said nothing when Arden sighed her worries to her in the darkness, after they had met Grandfather in the garden, and talked quietly in the moonlight for an hour or two before retreating to bed. Sometimes Arden wondered at the sparkle in her old teacher's eyes that could be mischief or tears, but Glynna had stopped lecturing her about the risk she was taking, and for that alone Arden was grateful. She knew better than to push her luck. She had a few special friends— Bernine, 
a lady's maid, gave Violet a rag doll. She sometimes came to sit with the little girl in the chill of the morning while Arden examined the tree, and Bernine's mistress slept away her late evenings of dancing and wine. Anna, Jason's wife, brought pretty little dresses for Violet to wear, and blushed when Arden thanked her and praised her needlework. They were only outgrown clothes of her own daughter, and shouldn't someone get some use out of them? And there was Olive, finding time in her overwhelming load of work to concoct special treats for Violet and Arden both, and regaling them with the newest palace gossip. The gossip was a blessing and torment for Arden. She learned when to avoid the garden, so the nobles wouldn't see her and remark on her, or someone who was more alert and less self-absorbed might recognize her and also when it was safe to dance and sing and spread her plant-wise magic to all the trees and flowers. After all, the entire garden was affected in some way by the illness of the apple tree. Arden knew better than to believe her disguise of cut hair and peasant clothes would protect her forever. Eventually, someone who had traveled to Westerland would recognize her. The gossip helped her change her steps to avoid discovery. The gossip also frustrated her. She knew better than to add to it, and she knew not to ask questions that would make people curious, wondering why she wanted to know one detail or another. No one would speak of Prince Ambrose, so how could she learn where he was, how to find him, if she didn't dare ask? For all she knew, Ambrose was dead, and the people were afraid to say so, because they feared the one who had committed such a horrendous crime. Ambrose had to be alive, and living imprisoned somewhere in the palace. His death would strike Stonemount with a curse far worse than the damage Maddox had done, and yes, the damage she had done with her bitterness and unforgiving spirit. Arden refused to ask Glinna to find him, because after being imprisoned so long, he likely had little magic left, meaning he wouldn't be able to see or hear Glinna. What kind of torment would it be for her to see her old friend and unable to speak with him? Arden didn't have the heart to ask such pain of her teacher. Arden chose to believe Ambrose was alive, and everyone had been ordered to act as if he didn't exist, just like most people acted as if the apple tree behind its wall didn't exist. How could they deny it when the tree had grown so it reached three feet above the spikes on the wall? Because she spent most of her time with the tree, she became invisible in some ways. It exasperated her and made her head hurt, trying to understand how anyone could be anonymous when they were healing a magical apple tree. How could the entire kingdom ignore its presence? And yet, the blight brought by the tree had persuaded nearly everyone to act and speak as if it didn't exist. Her proof was that almost no one came to gawk at her as she worked. No one went through the gates except for herself and Violet, Jason and Grandfather. Whatever lay behind the wall was invisible. Now, with the tree beginning to heal and green again, her biggest challenge was finding Ambrose, preferably before the tree produced apples. She had to let Ambrose know of her need, just in case Maddox tried to cheat her. He would if he could. She had ample proof of that. Before she quite knew it, Arden had been two weeks among the servants of the palace. She had a set routine and friends, and Violet continued to improve, if only gradually. If not for her growing sense of guilt and shame over what she had done to both her apple trees, Arden thought she might have been persuaded to take Violet and flee Stonemount in the night. She had to heal the tree, both trees. And yes, 
she needed to reveal Maddox's evil to the world. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. What if Sleeping Beauty wanted to sleep? What if the sleep was amnesia? Or just a long, bad dream? What if her beauty sleep lasted too long? What if she sacrificed herself to sleep to protect her family? Those are just some of the questions explored in the new fairy tales anthology, Perchance to Dream. Seventeen authors present new twists on the story of Sleeping Beauty, Perchance to Dream, Fairy Tale Anthology Number 3, from Ye Old Dragon Books. And now, back to the story. Midway through their third week in Stonemount, the three of them enjoyed a quiet evening in their little room. Violet was asleep, clutching her new doll and smiling that adorable little girl's smile that made Arden's heart ache for pure joy and contentment. Glinna softly hummed the lullaby that had put Violet asleep nearly an hour before, and Arden brushed her hair. It still amused her how much less time the chore took and how much more she enjoyed it. It's strange, Auntie, she murmured, still glancing around for the mirror that wasn't there. In some ways, I think I've never been happier. I don't know why. Maybe because you can see the people of Stonemount aren't all monsters, her teacher offered. Just their king. Please, it isn't my imagination. Violet is getting better. Oh, I think any change of surroundings will cause an improvement. Glinna floated over to the other side of the narrow room, to inspect the tiny pitcher filled with flowers that one of Jason's undergardeners had brought during dinner. A lasting one? Time will tell. Fresh air and simple food are much better than relying on nasty-tasting potions that abuse the herbals Yeshin gave us. Glinna sniffed her disdain, making Arden chuckle. The sound stopped abruptly. Arden? Glinna turned around, alarmed for a moment. That's it, Arden whispered. Fresh air. What? She reached out as if she would hug her teacher. The tree's healing is slow because of that wall. It holds the poison in, along with that bad water. It's starting to blossom, but I'm afraid that is as far as it will get unless the wall comes down. She grinned. We have to knock down the wall. How? Arden and Jason had never argued until that moment. He gave her every tool, every odd thing she asked for to aid in the healing of the tree. He would have given over his entire army of gardeners to her assistance if she had asked. But when she told him the wall had to come down, he refused flat out, trembling in fear. I just don't understand, he said, after they had countered each other for nearly twenty minutes. He was almost whimpering, holding back words Arden sensed were there, yet he could not speak. She suspected what he would say. The tree looks much better. It won't get any better unless we knock the wall down. Her throat felt sore, her tongue numb from repeating the same words over and over. But is a caged beast truly alive? But it's only a tree. It is alive. It feels and grows and reacts to everything around it. She swallowed her frustration. She couldn't exactly tell him the tree was still part of her, reacting to her heart and soul without revealing who she was. But it's green and growing new leaves. It won't grow any further than that unless we knock down the wall. She's right, Jason. Dylan startled them both. How long he had been standing in the gates, dusty with travel, 
Arden had no idea. But the king, Jason choked, unable to finish the statement. Does he come to this part of the garden anymore, Dylan said. Does anyone? No one will notice the wall is down until they come for the apples for the princess. And by then the tree will be healed and no one will care. He spread his arms, inviting them to agree with him. Am I right? Ambrose and Dylan were conferring, quietly in his rooms, discussing the success of Dylan's mission when Glynna came through the wall. She flew a circle around them twice, wringing her hands and shooting out green-gold sparks. We're ruined! I should have warned her not to push so hard! Oh, that awful, nasty, sneaking little brat! What is it? Ambrose leaped to his feet. That girl is a spy from Maddox, just like I feared. She ran off to report about the preparation to knock down the wall, and now Maddox himself is on his way to the tree. Go, Ambrose said, turning to his grandson, with more power in his voice and lungs than he had used in years. Do whatever it takes, but protect Arden. Dylan didn't hesitate, but pushed aside the shutters and slid over the windowsill and leaped into the trees to slide down to the ground. I don't dare go and reveal that I know she's here, he cried, and sank down in his chair, aching in his chest. He bowed his head. A cool touch startled him, and he opened his eyes to see Glinna caressing his face. Trust in Yeshin, my dear, she whispered. Arden had left Violet with Bernine and Olive when she headed outside to confront Jason that morning. She was still alone after her morning chores with the tree, and had settled down to rest and enjoy the increased sense of well-being radiating from it. She sat at the foot of the tree, head tilted back, eyes half-closed, humming a soft nonsense song under her breath. It was the first time in months that she could remember simply enjoying being alive. Hide! Dylan gasped as he staggered through the gates and skidded to a stop before her. Why? She could only stare stupidly at him, half inclined to giggle. The king is coming! For half a moment, his words made no sense. Hadn't he said just a short time ago that Maddox never came near the tree? Then Arden went cold when she realized the disaster about to happen. She hadn't planned on seeing Maddox face to face until she claimed her reward. What if he recognized her, despite her disguise? Dylan grabbed her hand. They headed for the gate, but the approaching voices were too near. They couldn't slip out without being spotted. Dylan stared at her for half a second, then grabbed her shoulders and turned her around, nearly pushing her off her feet as they hurried back to the tree. Arden wished she could turn into a bird and fly away. What was the use of having magic if it couldn't protect her? Was this the time to pray her plant-wise magic was so strong she could become one with her tree? Yet what would happen to Violet if she vanished into the tree and couldn't get out again? Forgive me. Dylan grabbed her shoulders and turned her around, knocking her off balance. She snatched at him as he pushed her headlong into the stagnant pool. Dylan let out a shout as he went down with her. Arden yelped as she went to her hands and knees in the mud and floating debris. She closed her mouth just in time to keep from choking or being smothered. She slipped as she struggled to her feet and rolled in the half-dry leaves and other debris sitting by the pond, waiting to be gathered up and carted away. What did you do that for? She caught up a handful of mud and flung it at him. It hit him square in the face. Dylan's eyes widened. Then he grinned. You're brilliant. I adore you. Then he dug both hands into the mud and debris and flung the sloppy mess at her, spattering face and hair and the left side of her dress. 
Arden muffled a shriek and lunged at him, fury making her careless. They went down. She sputtered and slapped at him, spreading more filth across his face. Cruel laughter rang off the walls, and Arden turned to see the four men she loathed most in the world standing in the gate. Maddox, Lord Jago, and Maddox's two henchmen. Dylan muffled chuckles as he struggled to his feet and helped her stand. "'What is going on here?' Maddox said, through snorts of laughter. "'That gate is supposed to be locked. "'Who are you filthy peasants to come in here and make this your trysting place?' he ended on a roar. Arden caught her breath, realizing in that moment what Dylan had done. They were indeed filthy, spattered with mud and rotting leaves and dirty water, entirely unrecognizable. She thought she would like to kiss Dylan. "'Majesty!' Jason hurried through the gates. He was pale, gasping, as if he had raced all the way here. "'What happened? Mistress Mora, who did this to you?' He turned on Dylan. "'What did you do to her?' "'She was in a plant-wise trance,' Dylan hurried to say. "'I startled her. She fell, and we both lost her balance as I was trying to help her out of the mud.' "'Plant-wise?' Maddox sneered. "'Surely not?' His voice softened and his fury slowly shifted to wonder as he took a step back and his gaze traveled over the tree. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library.